0: Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel this morning is from the first chapter of St. Matthew. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Allie, thank you so much. I don't think my body has any more shivers to offer than, than at this very moment, so thank you for what is a beautiful gift and uh, your willingness to share that gift for the glory of God. And that is certainly a, a blessing to us and, and to so many others, so God bless you. Before I get started, and this is unrelated to my sermon, but I just have to acknowledge what is an, uh, a rather monumental moment in our country's history, right in this moment. Uh, with a vaccine that was approved in the last day and now is literally being shipped to locations around the country uh, arriving tomorrow, we are in the middle of a, an effort that the, the Army General who is coordinating this Operation Warp Speed um, described at least logistically as, as similar to D-Day. I mean, the logistical effort is phenomenal. I only mention that because it is truly remarkable, and so we, we stand with great hope and expectation that in fact perhaps there is a light at the end of this tunnel. And so we pray for all of those who are involved in this effort and, uh, and look forward to that day when we can all return to, to a life that is a bit more normal perhaps, and certainly even to worship uh, where we can worship to- together. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the inspiration of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are a Lord, a rock, our redeemer. Amen. So, raise your hand if you ever participated as a child in a Christmas pageant. Anyone? Yeah, a few of you. I did too, and I remember it well. It's not like yesterday. Uh, it's not that vivid, but sort of. Time was, say, a few weeks before Christmas, 1971. Location, the Fellowship Hall of Lutheran Chapel Church in Gastonia, North Carolina. The purpose, it was the annual kindergarten Christmas pageant, but unique this year because I was involved for the very first time. Now, it was a typical pageant, I'm sure, with shepherds and kings and angels, kids dressed as cows and sheep, same thing that you probably participated in as, as a child. What I remember most, however, was the great worry among us boys that we would be selected to be Joseph and that we would have to pretend in front of everyone that we were married to a girl. Yuck! I mean, what five-year-old boy wants to do that? Give us a staff, give us a crown, but don't ask us to hold hands with Mary. That would just be unimaginable. And yet, that was my introduction to Joseph, and that was my first opinion about Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. It is sort of funny, actually, because there's really not much more than that that we know about Joseph beyond what those five-year-old boys knew about Joseph. There's not much in Scripture to, to help us out about this man who would become, again, Joseph's or Jesus's earthly father. But who is he? And why? Why was he so essential in making a home for Jesus? Why was he such an important model for you and for me? We know a lot about angels and shepherds and and magi and Mary and even an innkeeper and and a stable and a manger and all of those pieces of the puzzle, and yet we know so little about Joseph. Why is his story so important? Well, that's what I'd like to explore a wee bit today. Joseph is only mentioned by name three times in the Bible, in the first chapter of Matthew that we just read just now, and then in the story in in Luke, in Luke's version of this birth story of Jesus. Likewise, Luke has, and only in Luke's gospel, another little story of the childhood of Jesus when at age 12 he goes to to visit the temple and he sits with some of the rabbis in, in the temple. But no other place is Joseph's name mentioned. Now he is referenced in the 13th chapter of Matthew when Jesus is described as, quote, the carpenter's son, but He's not named by, by name, He's not mentioned by name, only as a carpenter. That's it, not much. And yet, what we have in today's gospel reading just may be enough. Let's take a look in particular at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Joseph was a righteous man. And that one phrase says a whole lot about about really all we need to know about about Joseph. It's not a phrase that the people of the first century Palestine would bat around like, he's amazing, or he's fantastic, he's an awesome guy, cool guy. In first century Palestine, to say someone was a righteous man was, was one of the most impressive things that could be said about a man. Here's what I mean. In Nazareth, where Jesus lived, Jewish boys began their education at the age of four or five around our age of kindergarten. They learned from a rabbi alongside a group of other boys, and they would use the Torah as their textbook, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The teaching emphasized both reading and writing scripture, learning Hebrew, of course, the original language of the Old Testament. Large portions were memorized, and it was likely that many of the students would know and memorize the entire Torah by the time they were 11 or 12 years of age, if you can even imagine that. At that point, they would either learn a trade or, if they were particularly good at that that task of learning and interpreting Scripture, then they would find another rabbi who would enlist them and allow them to become part of his cohort. This time they would then dive into, for the next several years, dive into the Psalms and the prophets, eventually memorizing most of the Old Testament by the time they were 16 or 17 years of age, learning to interpret it and apply it themselves. So by 18 years of age, unless they are chosen to go even further study, into even further study with a rabbi, they were ready. And that's the purpose of all of this, right? It was a leadership training program. They wanted to make sure that these that these boys would become young men, who could become leaders of their community, who would be faithful fathers, who would who would be righteous observers and interpreters of scripture. They were preparing them for this very moment. So now, age 18, they are ready for marriage and for vocation fully versed in Scripture, having memorized Torah, the Psalms, and prophets so that now they can be leaders in their community who can serve as perfect examples of Deuteronomy 6 when it says, we are called to love God with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength. So, having said all of that, when someone is called a righteous man in first century Palestine, that's what you get. That was Joseph a righteous man. But up until this point, he's considered righteous based entirely on what he's learned, Uh, how he was raised as a child, uh, and which rabbi he followed as a mentor. But what's important is how would he turn what he had learned into action? Now, let's look at verse 18, and now we can dive into this particular story of Joseph. After Mary had begun, had become engaged to Joseph, she was found to be with child. And you know, don't you, what that meant. It, it meant that he wasn't Joseph's child. This child was not Joseph's. It was an awkward moment, obviously, when, when he was told all about it. These days, I don't know, maybe that doesn't seem to be terribly unusual, but in first century Palestine, very much so. And, uh, and it filled him and so many others immediately would have filled them with great deal of heartache, especially within the family, which would have been embarrassed, angry, filled with all kinds of, of shame. You see, it was a very rigid culture that felt bound by the law. And don't forget, Joseph was... A righteous man. So, he understood the law, and he understood precisely what it meant, that by then finding out about Mary that she, had, that she had a child within her womb that was another man's child, that, that he could, and by right should, by law should, uh, uh, claim her to be an adulterer to then take her to the city gate and have her stoned to death. That's what the law prescribed. They didn't take stuff like this lightly. They wanted to root out the sin in the community, and that was the only way they knew how. But what a dark path for that community to take. What a dark path for Joseph to, spot, to follow, especially with Mary, who in that moment is bearing the Son of God. But here's the deal. I mean, you, you realize, right, how quickly that all could have gone down, how close we came to the story of Jesus ending in that moment. I have no doubt that all of the forces of evil and of Satan, they were already gathering up stones to be hurled in that moment. Until God intervenes with a series of three dreams. In the first... God says, and this is verse 20, still part of our story, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He will save His people from their sins, and all the world will know Him as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, look, I admit, I have some pretty wacky dreams. Maybe you do too, but this one takes the cake, right? I mean, the second dream is then maybe even worse, I mean, after Jesus has been born, God tells Joseph, okay, now it's time to pick up your family and hightail it 600 miles to Egypt. They'd be refugees in an unknown land. They'd be in an area where they did not even know the language, but go, God said, because Herod is going to be on your trail, and he is willing to do anything and everything, including killing every baby in the region just to find Jesus. The third dream occurred a few years later, after they had been in Egypt for a while. Perhaps now they had learned the language. They certainly had been enmeshed in the culture. We don't know exactly, and yet an angel appears one night in a dream to Joseph and instructs him now to return, to leave Egypt, go back to your home in Nazareth. But keep in mind, by going home, then people would remember, wait, that was Mary, Joseph. Hey, we remember what happened to Mary, right? And so all of a sudden, they are, they are bound for ridicule and by neighbors and maybe even being ostracized by the community or by their very family. These are not easy button dreams, are they? I mean, the easy path would have been for Joseph just to divorce Mary in the first place. Let the law take care of her. Let the community take care of her. I'll find another wife somewhere else. That would have been the easy path. Be done with it. But he didn't. The easy path would have been, once they got to Egypt, to stay there. Again, they, by this time, maybe knew the language. Found some friends, a community, a neighborhood. They were, they were perfectly fine in Egypt. But they didn't stay. This is a really important observation as we look into the life of Joseph and the Holy Family, because never once did they take the easy path. In every case, he took the more courageous path by willingly following the voice of of God, which meant that in every case, he took the more faithful path. He took the more obedient path with good measure, because the fate of the world hinged on those decisions, there's a lot of fear in the world today. You know it, I know it, whether it's COVID, the uncertainties of the vaccine, of the, the economy. I mean, how do we stay faithful is the question, right? How do we stay obedient in the midst of it all? And the decisions that we have to make, how do we discern the voice of God in the, in the clutter of so many other voices that are surrounding us? Well, Look to Joseph, who in every case took the way of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And love did you notice that I mean those were the lenses that he was looking through whenever he had a, a decision that he had to make he would look through the lens of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love now the world doesn't necessarily act that way especially these days it seems it seems like the lens that we continue to look through is the lens of anger and bitterness or and, and maybe even pride right when we have major decisions to make or when we have the opinions to offer of something or someone we look through the the lens of anger anger, bitterness, pride, not mercy, forgiveness, and love. And yet, that's precisely what Joseph offers to us. Something happened to me one Christmas a couple of years ago that I wrote about in a blog post but I never shared. I was at um, Mean Mug Coffee Shop one Advent afternoon writing a sermon. I was waiting to go out of town with Krista when I got a call that said that plans had changed and couldn't go, which gave me a chance to Buy a peppermint mocha and stay for a while, so that's not so bad. <laughs> there were only three of us in the coffee shop, me, the barista, and a guy doing some painting. Long story short, there was conversation that led to confession, that led to testimony, that led to encounter. It's sort of what happens when pastors show up at coffee shops and put a Bible there on the table, right? It's like that, that, that's just what's going to unfold, it seems. But in any case, this guy was telling me about his pretty normal life. As it turns out, he was a pretty good storyteller, and I was thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. He had a good upbringing, told me about his parents. He had a full athletic scholarship to college, professional golf career, what was always on his mind, and he was even beginning sort of movement in, in that direction, and yet there was an addiction that was always a part of his life that, that he had tried to keep hidden. But it was really ruining things, and particularly in one moment in his life. He thought, felt like all things were about to collapse upon him, and so this one particular night, as his life was literally falling apart, he got into his car and he started driving. He did not even know where he was going, but it led into a very dark place on a rainy night with a bottle of pills in his hand, smoking, he said, vividly remembering an unfiltered camel cigarette ready to end it all. He found himself on a dark, deserted street in Winston-Salem. He was screaming at God as he got out of his car, beating his hand against the hood of the car. Tears were flowing, and then he saw four guys in hoodies walking towards him that dark night. Now, you know, I'm sure, what he was thinking, right or wrong. All of a sudden, he became very, very anxious. He became very afraid and tense. One of them comes close, too close, and he asks for a cigarette. His eyes were fixed. It was bizarre, he said. And then he put his hands on his shoulder, and he began to squeeze very, very tightly until it hurt. Then he he pulled in close, uncomfortably close, and he whispered to him, don't go there where you will not receive your blessing. And then he walked away. At that point, I had not breathed in about a minute. <laughs> he told me that he was stunned. He didn't know what to do except to stick his fingers down his throat, throw up whatever he had put, already put down there, and drive as fast as he possibly could to the, e, to the ER. On the way, he was crying, he said, but he was also laughing. He knew that his life was suddenly changed forever by someone whose name he did not even know, but perhaps we know as Emmanuel. Since then, he told me, he's tried his best to be faithful, not perfect, but faithful to his wife, to his kids, his God, so thankful that for that unexpected encounter along a path that he never imagined taking. Before he went back to his painting, he told me this, and these are words that you just have to write down. (laughs) He said, Satan knows me as well as I know myself. And for some reason, I kept following the dark path that he had chosen for me. But then he continued, what I learned that night was that God knows me too. In fact, God knows me better than anyone else. Emmanuel, I said sort of underneath my breath, what? He asked I said, I'm sorry, I'm writing a sermon. Emmanuel, it's the name of Jesus. It means God with us. Then he he laughed and he said, man, there's no other way to look at it. It was God that night. I'm not making this up, by the way, I promise, even though I know it totally feels like it. But soon after this young man left, Evelyn had arranged for the lighting of a Christmas tree at Mean Mug. Someone began singing Silent Night and Sam plugged in the tree that brought light into a very dark place, (laughs) light that literally shattered the darkness. I could not even sing along. I really don't have any idea what to make of that story, except that I was so thankful to hear of this young man's encounter with the Holy Spirit. Just. Like every time I read the story of Joseph, I'm so very thankful and I'm so stunned and surprised by God's eagerness to encounter Joseph and us so that He might lead us down a path that He has chosen for us. Even even when we resist, even when we think that we know a better way, this Emmanuel, this God who knows us better than we know ourselves, is there to guide us. I'm not sure what that means for you right now, but my prayer is that it will mean something to you this week as we continue to make our way to the manger, as we continue to make our way home, looking to our right, looking to our left, and seeing brothers and sisters of every shape and color and size and background and experience and nationality and race all on this journey together. All of us claimed by a God who looks to us deeply in our eyes, draws us close, squeezes us tight, and says, you are mine. May God encounter us all with the spirit of his love, grace, and mercy, and may that encounter change us in ways that will make a difference in our lives and in this world. Amen.